All right, thank you guys. Brian, I'm just glad your symbol stayed on this time. That's a lot of good rapping on that symbol. If you haven't seen it, we have a video on our website, on our social media platforms, and you can see the uh, symbol flying off during, uh, during the worship time last week. And Brian never missed a lick, just kept on going. Uh, let's open our Bibles this morning. Back to the book of Romans chapter 11, we're doing a verse by verse exposition through this uh, wonderful book. And I hope that you have come to appreciate uh, what it is to be a people of destiny. As you have studied this book, if you didn't already, I would hope this is heightened for you, a greater appreciation for what it is to be a people of, of destiny, what it is to be God's chosen, what it is to be a people who are elect. Uh, who have been predestined, a people for whom and through whom uh, God is working and laboring for the redemption of the entire created order. As John would describe it in Revelation 21, this new heaven and new earth where we in this, in this story of redemption will dwell in the presence of God. Paul has been very intentional as his de desire is to go to the ends of the earth, to travel to Spain, Rome hopefully becoming uh, his base of operations for that, that westward journeying ministry, uh, to take the gospel, continuing to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul has laid out some, uh, some theological precepts uh, throughout the book of Romans. We saw in Romans 1, he established that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. He is the one promised by the prophets. Uh, he would write of his atoning death, his burial, his resurrection, about the hardening of Israel's heart, how the greater majority of Israel has hardened their hearts. They have rejected the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, but now being used, even this remnant that was from Israel, this remnant that still remains and is an instrument of God to reach the Gentiles. Then we will see as we uh, deal with chapter 11 today, uh, we find this, uh, this regathering, if you will, of Israel as, as a faith community, the fulfillment of this uh, covenant that was made with Abraham, that covenant has not gone unbroken. So I, I want us to see and appreciate, even in these chapters that are, that are so dense with a great deal of Old Testament, as Paul is writing, uh, as we have seen in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he makes some 40 Old Testament references. The assumption of, of Paul is that we have a working knowledge of the Old Testament, which few in our day and time very, uh, rarely do. Uh, to our own shame. And uh, so that's why I think many have found chapters 9, 10, and 11 to be especially difficult and challenging to understand. It's because of these Old Testament references. But, but I think it is significant in what Paul is doing here in chapters 9, 10, and 11, showing that the promises made to Israel, the promise, the messianic promises, uh, the covenant that was established with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, that that covenant has not been revoked. Uh, it, it still remains. Uh, that even though Israel has been a, a, an unbelieving people, though they have been an unfaithful people, a disobedient people, that, that, that covenant is irrevocable. In fact, it has been fulfilled. And that to our benefit as Gentile believers, because you and I have been grafted into that covenant relationship. Because here's what I want us to get to and to have an appreciation for, is that if that covenant with Abraham to Israel, 
if that had been irrevocable, if that was something that could be taken back, that would be to our detriment as well. If the, un, if the unfaithfulness and the, and the disobedience of Israel would result in the, in the revokement of that covenant that was made to Abraham, then we would be very vulnerable as well to the assurances being taken from us regarding our salvation and relationship through Christ Jesus. And so I hope we can appreciate that we are in fact a people of destiny, a people for whom God has a plan and an appreciation for the labor of God, the work of God, the wisdom of God of seeing that plan come to fruition. Well, that's what Paul has been talking about throughout the entirety of, of the book, uh, and especially now in, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And this wraps up the theological section of this book. Beginning next week, chapter 12, verse 1, we'll have that transition word, therefore. And Paul, for the remainder of that book, is going to talk about the ethical implications, that is how we should live as a result of these theological realities that we've, emba- we've embraced. But to be sure, we are a people of destiny. There is a plan and God is working that plan. And Paul says some things about this plan in chapter 11 that that I want us to to speak to and and to give consideration to this morning. And the first thing that in these first 10 verses of chapter 11, the first thing that Paul highlights as I'm reading this text is that God's plan is preserved. It is preserved. It's not something that has changed. It's not something that's going to go away. Now, in fact, he starts with this question, this rhetorical question. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Well, the the way it's phrased, the expectation is no, he has not. Far from it, Paul says. For I too, for I too am an Israelite. Paul points to his own life. I'm exhibit A that, that God has not rejected his people. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? He's making a reference here to 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, chapter 18, chapter 19. Elijah here is in a state of depression. He's on Mount Horeb in a cave hiding out. He's being uh, threatened and chased down by, uh, uh, by the king, his wicked queen Jezebel. He has just dealt with the, uh, with the prophets of Baal and they've been consumed by fire. And, and now uh, Elijah is, is fearful, he's depressed and he's having a woe is me party. And he thinks that the purposes of God, the plans of God are all resting upon him. But what is, this is what, what he says. Quoting from 1 Kings, Paul says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. This is quoting Elijah. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone, <laughs> Elijah said, can you imagine telling God this? I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? What is the divine oracle? What is it that that God says to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
Now, again, this, this is God's initiative. These 7,000 aren't to be commended because of their own piety, their own, their own sanctity. This, this is something that God has initiated himself. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there, there has also come to me at the present time a remnant. I know that the greater majority of Israel has, has rejected me. I, I know that, that, that there is just a small few. There is a remnant according to God's gracious choice. This is God's doing. A remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of work since otherwise grace is no longer grace. Grace abounds in this section. Listen, he's saying, Paul is saying, don't, don't be discouraged by your lesser. God has always done his greatest work in lesser numbers. God has always done his greatest work. You find it in scripture in just, in just a remnant. Not in the great things, but, but the small things. Think about Matthew chapter 5. The parable of the judgment, the separation of, of the sheep and the goats. What was it based upon? Small things. Enter into my presence. You fed me when, when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. You gave me, you gave me water when I was thirsty. You gave me drink when I was thirsty. You visited, visited me when I was imprisoned. You, you ministered to me when, when I was sick. See, sometimes we let our egos, from a human perspective, we let our, our human egos always look out to the horizon. Our egos run rampant looking for something big that I can do for God to the neglect of what his spirit wants to, to do right here where our feet are. And the little things that we can do on a, on a daily basis, bearing forth the fruit of the Spirit where our feet are, has a far greater cumulative effect for the kingdom of God than the, than, than the occasional flavor of the day calls in which we invest ourselves on occasion. God always does his greatest work for the kingdom when it comes to remnants, little things. And it's a reminder that what God is doing, what God's plans and purposes, they're, they're not based upon human merit. They're not based upon, upon what we deserve. They, uh, they're not based upon our works, as, as he has said again and again and again. But it is all driven by the grace and the mercies of God. What then, he says in verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, what Israel is seeking, it, is not, it has not obtained. But those who are chosen obtained it. He's referring back to this covenant promise. We know that, that from Abraham's loins, there, there came seeds of, there were children of the flesh, but there were also children of the promise. These were the ones that were chosen according to simply the grace and the mercies and the mysteries of God. But those who were chosen obtained it in the rest, that is the rest of Israel. And the rest were hardened. Interesting that the verb rest here is in the passive voice. This means this is something God has done. 
But I don't want that to frighten us. I don't want us to, I don't want that to discourage us because as I've mentioned a few weeks ago, when we see this, this rhetoric of being a chosen people, a predestined people, an elect people, our minds immediately want to reduce this into something that is exclusive, something that, that is small. But the, the appropriate understanding is to see that when God is doing this choosing and this electing of a particular people from another people is that it's always for a greater redemptive purpose, that there is always a greater good that comes from this. It opens the doors to a salvation of vastness that we never imagined. And that is the salvation, that is the plan that God is preserving. Just as it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 29.4 and Isaiah 29.10, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, and this is David, David asking God to punish his, his adversaries, his, his enemies who hate him for no reason. May their table, table is a place of security, a place of, of, of communion and fellowship. Could also be the, a reference to the altar in the temple. They've, they've put their hope in the law and their own, their own righteousness, their own works. May their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. May their eyes be darkened to, to see not and bend their backs continually. It's a vision of a people who, who, have, who are so stooped over that they are incapable of seeing what God has in store for them and what God is doing in working in ways that they never imagined. But it's a plan that God has established from the foundations of the world. And while we can become discouraged, he says, listen, this is a plan that God is preserving. It's also a plan that is purposed. He says in, in verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall. Did they? That is, it's not that they're irredeemable. I say then, they did not stumble so as, as to fail, did they? Far from it. But by their wrongdoing, talking about Israel having rejected Jesus as the Messiah, by their wrongdoing, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, underscore that. I'm going to come back to that in just in just a moment, but by their wrongdoing, by Israel's wrongdoing, that is the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their wrongdoing proves to be riches for the world, that is to the benefit of the world, and their failure reaches, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Again, see how much bigger this is, this plan of God? You would think, oh my goodness, Israel has failed, and they did. But God from the very beginning had, had a much larger vision. Now then, because of their rejection, salvation's offered to the Gentiles. Now it's something bigger than the world would have ever imagined. Now the prophecy comes, comes to fulfillment that Abraham will be a father to the nations. You ever wondered about how was that ever going to happen? This is how it happened. Jesus rejected as Messiah. Now then salvation being offered 
to the Gentiles. Verse 12, now if their wrongdoing proves to be riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will, for, will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, addressing the Gentiles directly. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Therefore, insofar as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I may move my own people to jealousy and save some of them. There's that word jealousy again. For if their rejection proves to be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul, this is why Paul's an apostle to the Gentiles. That by the Gentiles being one, now then you're going to see it in just a moment. What, what's going to happen is now then there's going to be a regathering of the Jews. Now then all of a sudden they're going to be jealous. They're going to be more open. Once they see through the Gentiles how God has worked, it'll be something that they will long for. And then, then they, will, they will accept this Messiah, this Jesus as Messiah. Maybe it seems odd to us. It does at a reading. I get it at face value reading. Uh, to read this, to read these two passages and hear that God's desire in giving salvation to the Gentiles, uh, like in verse 11, is, is to make Israel jealous. But you know what it says to us? It says that sometimes even God the Father has to treat his children like children. Even God the Father has to, on occasion, treat his children like children. Now, every parent, a small child, will, will understand this. We've all probably seen this. You know, sometimes when your kids are getting rowdy, you try to offer them something, you know, just to get them quiet, get them distracted or something like this. And, you know, well, this, this one's crying over here. And, you, you know, you tell this one, here, if you'll, if you'll stop, I, I'll give you this piece of candy. No, I don't want it. And... The brother over here says, well, I'll take it. Okay, you can take it. And then we go, no, 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 I want it. I want it. I want it. You ever had that? That's what I'm seeing right here. This gift was for you. You didn't want it. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give it to a people who didn't even want it. I'm going to give it to a people that had no desire for it whatsoever. But what's going to happen is that you see their joy, you see their fulfillment, you see their escape from the pagan gods, the things that would hold them hostage. You're going to see their, their deliverance. You're going to see their lives being transformed. You're going to see how, how God is using them. And the prayer is that the purposes of God will indeed be fulfilled. That Israel will be jealous. And they'll desire what God had intended for them to have and what God intended to belong to them from the beginning. Always great irony is there in, great, in God's working. Israel that was supposed to be a light to the world, drawing the nations unto them, now then is dependent upon the Gentiles, the ministry to the Gentiles, so that they might reach Israel in turn. God has a plan. God has a plan that is preserved. God has a plan that is purpose, but he also, in this plan, it's a plan that is perpetuated. He says in verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches 
are as well. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive, that is the Gentile believers, you being a wild olive were, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant, he's saying to us as Gentiles. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, but, but if you are arrogant, remember that it, that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. It's not that I've washed my hands of, of Israel. It's not, that, it's not that I've reassessed things and said, well, you know, I like the Gentiles better than I like the Jews. I'm just going to wash my hands of this whole Abrahamic covenant, and we're just going to, we're going to start over with the cross. Don't be so arrogant. Paul is saying, all of this is driven by the grace and the mercies of God. You will say then, verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. They were broken off because they, they, would, not, they would not accept that Jesus was the Messiah. But you stand by your faith. That's why you're here. That's why you were grafted in, because of your faith. Just like Abraham, the father of our faith, even though we're talking about Gentiles, not your merit, not that you're better than anyone else, but your faith. Do not be conceited, he says, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that is Israel, ethnic Israel, he will not spare you either. See then the kindness and severity of God to those who fail, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, for otherwise, no different from ethnic Israel, for otherwise you too will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. In other words, that Israel is going to continue to, to be a broken off branch as long as they continue in unbelief. But they can come to faith like you, and when they do, they will be regrafted. There will be a regathering of Israel. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Verse 24, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches, that is Israel, be grafted in to their own olive tree? For I do not want you brothers and sisters to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God's plan is being perpetuated. It's going to continue until ultimately it prevails. But make no mistake about it, God here is not talking about a separate plan for Gentiles through Christ Jesus by faith and then some separate plan for Israel, not at all. That would contradict everything that Paul has been talking about, that God, he's made very clear that God is not partial, that there's neither Jew nor Greek nor Gentile, barbarian, 
that all are the same in the eyes of God. And so we cannot read this passage and assume then, well, then there's a a separate plan for Israel and a separate plan for everyone else through Christ Jesus. No, not at all. It is a plan that must come, it is a plan that must come through the person of Jesus Christ, an act of God's grace and mercy. And it is a plan that must be perpetuated until it prevails. You see how vital it is for us as believers to continue to be a people that are on mission, to be the presence of God in this world, how God through us is going to reach and, and can bring to fruition the fulfillment of that covenant with Abraham. That Israel, because of us, because of this ministry to us, because of our grafting in, we're going to be a part of this greater redemptive purpose of God. Very quickly, a final thing about this plan. This is what Paul has been saying all along. It's irrevocable because God's plan is promised. He says in verse 26, quoting Isaiah 59, 20, And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. We know the deliverer to be Christ Jesus. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, that is Israel. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In relation to the gospel, they are enemies on on your account. But in relation to God's choice, they are beloved on account of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For them, for you, for us, together as a people of God. God in his mysterious ways is working this in a way and fashioning this in a way that our minds would have never imagined. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, Paul's overwhelmed by this. Oh, the depth, depth of his, of the riches both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it would be paid back to him. Again, coming back to God's grace in mercy. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Church, those here, those online, don't miss what Paul is saying, especially as we have moved through chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul desires for us to be keenly aware of the nearness of life, the nearness of this great salvation. That the salvation God desires for us, the redemptive purposes for which God desires 
for all to believe, to be a part. It's as close, listen, it's as close as, as believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's that close. And you're making an egregious error if you hear me this morning talking about the nearness of salvation and the opportunity that is ours to be a people of destiny, to be a part of God's elect people, to be used by God, that for us and through us, God desires to work that others might be drawn to him. If you're sitting here this morning and say, boy, I want that, but I'm just, I just don't think I measure up yet. I've got some things I got to clean up first. Yeah, you do. God will take care of all that. And I can assure you, you don't measure up yet. You never will. This, this is all about God's grace and mercy. And to say no continually to the working of the Spirit in your heart and mind, to continually put off receiving and taking the gift of eternal life that God desires to give to you, it will haunt you. It will haunt you for the rest of your life and all eternity. I oftentimes tell the story of Florence Chadwick. When talking about having to keep your eye on a goal, something that, that you want, that you labor and strive for. Florence Chadwick is a woman whose name was synonymous with long distance swimming in the 1950s. Swam the English Channel four times. Twice she did it against, against the tide in record time. But there was one time Florence Chadwick didn't reach her goals. July 4th, 1952, she was going to swim from the California mainland to Catalina Island, 21 miles away. It's a dense, heavy fog over the bay that morning. And if, if you've been to that part, if, if you've been out there, then, then you know the water is always, even in July, the water is a bone-chilling cold. But Florence Chadwick entered the water that day, began her swim with her support team support boats around her to help fend off the sharks her mother and her coach are in a boat directly beside her and after nine nine hours in the water Florence Chadwick tells them she's done they encourage her they plead with her keep going don't give up don't quit you've worked too hard so she stays in the water keeps plodding keeps stroking keeps swimming after 16 hours she said I'm done I don't have anything left again they begged pleaded encouraged to no avail. They reached in, pulled her into the, reached into the water, pulled her out, wrapped her in a, in a blanket and towels. And about that time, the, the fog lifted. And what do you think she saw? But the coastline of Catalina Island. Florence Chadwick had swam for 16 hours, 20 and one half miles and quit a half a mile short. Florence Chadwick was haunted. When she saw it, when it was that close, she was haunted and consumed with the thought of what I could have done, what I should have done. 
to the point that she went back and did it 30 days later and finished it. Salvation, eternal life, to be a part of God's destined people. It's right there. There to be received, there to be taken, there to be experienced. And in so doing, you become a child of destiny. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are for the nearness of salvation, the nearness of life. And we pray, Lord, that any within the sound of our, our voice, anyone that is near us, that has never made that choice, that decision, that has never received the gift of eternal life, that this might be their day of salvation. When some would become a part of your destined people, your chosen, to be used by you for the greater redemptive purposes of the world. Father, we desire, we desire to be living witnesses in our world. Might we live the kind of life with the kind of power, with the fruit being born out of our lives, that others might be drawn to you and be grafted in to your kingdom work. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.